We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Mr. Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on the old Twitter. And always some fantastic tweets coming from Jason, that's for sure. So that really is a must. But to the show today, and last week we interviewed investor Steve Lachlan at Excel, and so this week we're stepping to the other side of the table, and joining us in the hot seat, we have one of the most exciting SaaS founders of the day, in the form of Jens Nylander, founder and CEO at Automile, the startup that makes fleet and asset management much, much easier. They've got backing from some of the best in the business, including godfather of SaaS himself, Jason Lemkin, the wonderful team at Point9, Justin Kahn and Dawn Capital in London. As for Jens, he really is a serial entrepreneur with past endeavours including creating Sweden's largest music player and founding Jays, the manufacturer and developer of innovative headphones that went public and is listed on the NASDAQ. And I do have to give a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Jens today, without which this episode would not have been possible. Possible. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm thrilled to hand over to Jens Nylander, founder and CEO at Automile. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jens, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Jens. Harry, it's great to be here. I'd love to get started though today with a little bit about you and how you came to found one of the hottest SaaS startups in Automile. Correct. And, you know, Automile started in 2014, so about three years ago. And as Jason always say, you shouldn't declare your company before reaching one million in ARR. <laughs> so if, if I would use that math, I would say it's a two-year-old company. And I basically wanted to combine my skill set in, in the space of hardware and software to create a defensible company in a large marketplace. And the market I'm operating in is what we could call a connected car market, but specifically it's more called fleet management. It's a $30 billion global market. It's a lot of legacy with a lot of big vendors. There's a lot of private equity because, you know, most of the companies that operate in this sector are very, very profitable. And actually what's fun to learn is that Fleetmatics, that is one of the leaders in the space, actually is the second most profitable SaaS company listed on the planet today. Second after Viva, which is a CRM vendor. Wow. So that was the basic foundation of Automile. I wanted to combine both of them and create this IoT company that do both of the things. I'd love to start then by discussing kind of the combination of the two. Obviously, you had a prior startup IPOing on NASDAQ, and that was more hardware-focused. Automile being both hardware and software, as you mentioned. I've got to ask, how hard is it to be good at both? Let's start with that. First of all, it's a lot harder than most people believe. There are so many challenges around keeping a world-class team of hardware software engineers. And on top of that, you also need a world-class team of manufacturers and vendors that can help you to build the possible best product out there. And doing that is a lot harder than most first-time and maybe even second-time hardware founders understand. And investors has a lot of understanding in this sector because creating both of the things, you need a lot of knowledge, a lot of contact a lot of networks and also to deliver products in time which is the most of the difficulties in, in early stage companies where that deals with hardware and if you talk about our investors you know I have had the fortune to meet many investors and sometimes the first time they have a hard time understanding is that how much experience is really required to mass produce enterprise hardware and software together Jason with Saster Fund which led our A investment last year understood all this you know he could understood how hard it was to create this company and how hard it 
this also to create a scalable model, of course, because it was early stage and now it's actually operating and working because we are passing over 5 million in yearly revenue. Mm -hmm. And all of this is a combination of my experience in 14 years of the space of hardware and software. Basically, this is the third company for me. My first company called Joss, you know, launched 2003, just before Apple launched the third generation of their first iPod. Mm -hmm. I launched a much smaller product called MP110, which was a bass flash player that played music and could store music by using the USB port. I manufactured over 250,000 units in the first year and was blown away by building, I would say, a very fantastic European distribution model and network under six months. And my revenue was over $50 million the first year. But going back again, it's a lot harder than most people believe. Can I ask, would you say that kind of due to the inherent difficulties within all aspects of such a process, do you believe that it's almost uh, impossible for new entrants to come in with kind of incumbent heavy industries and then the likes of you kind of innovating with the experience that you do? I think my co-founders that has less experience in the hardware space, sometimes they feel stressed when, uh, you know, competitors are coming in, etc. And I'm always saying that, you know, calm down, nothing strange will happen. We know how this works. We look at the management team of the, of the competitor and we can easily detect what they're good and bad at, you know, because doing a project where you're combining both of these areas with hardware and software is so, it's, it's difficult, you know. You need so many things to make sure that you deliver products in time, you know what it costs, and you don't get bored, uh, bogged down by, by too many tasks on your table. And I think that even if new actors come in, it's also, you need to create a sales model that scales. And given that I know how hard it is to create a hardware model in 2003 to 2008, I also know how hard it is to create a model that basically is direct sales oriented, because that's what we do. We directly sell to companies. It's much harder. And I think that makes it uh, much more defensible than a generic SaaS model. Like if you're making a CRM software like Salesforce, there's many, many that pops up, but basically building a hardware and software company is a lot harder than most people believe, you know. And an example of that is that CRM companies pops out all the time in the software space. And of course, they can take a certain part of the market, like there's a couple of ones that you may have seen recently. And I think Pipedrive is one of them. And then the other one that is huge, of course, is Salesforce. And, you know, you're always competing with, you know, functions and features. In our industry, you're actually competing with a hardware product and a software product and the distribution model itself, because the distribution model has to be a simple as possible to scale globally because you're shipping physical boxes to customers. I want to touch on one element you said there about kind of building that repeatable sales model. Talk to me about this, kind of where you found the challenges in doing this with Automile and where the inflection points have been where you've kind of broken through those challenges and excelled that have allowed you to get to the, as you said, fantastic milestone of 5 million in ARR. Okay, so first of all, when I was 14 years old, I had to go and work. I had to do a living. I had to, you know, get all the cool tech stuff that I wanted to buy. And for that, I needed to work. So I started to work at a company which basically sold copiators and faxes. You know, you basically sold something for cash and then you sold something as a subscription, which was the copies itself. And during that time, I learned the fundamental things of a scalable, repeatable sales model. And during all my life, I've always been an engineer, but I've also been a salesperson. So I need to do a handle both of them. And early on, when I created Automa, I created a very repeatable sales model for SMB market, for small, medium-sized businesses. 
so what I did is that I created a lot of automation. I created a lot of things that measures and keeps people happy over time. I created a lot of processes internally, how we deal with customers that have complaints and how we deal with customers when are that are very, very small, you know, and how do we care about them? How do we make sure we keep them happy over time? As today, we are in multiple countries. There's always challenges with that. But I would say that my main thing has always been to try to early on to try to find that scalable sales model and then repeatedly hire executives and on top of that more salespeople that can help me to scale the company. I'm intrigued though. What aspects of it are so challenging to scale in terms of the sales model itself? And what is it in particular that allows you to excel at it? Is it hiring the first VP of sales that's brilliant? Is it finding a specific kind of go-to-market strategy that allows the sales model to excel? What are the kind of breakthroughs within that sales model for you? I think first of all the sales model if you talk about marketing capabilities within the sales model you always have budget constraints when you do multiple countries or multiple continents whatever you have a specific funding the specific funding could of course be large like in our case we raised over 12 million dollars and you know when when you see a channel working you want to double down and if you see that channels are working over multiple countries you need to to double down on multiple markets (laughs) and if you have a hardware element and you also have an element where basically customers are paying after a certain amount of time you basically need cash that's what you need and i think that we have found a model where you know we have shrinking our trial period down from 60 days to 14 days and still seem that most customers likes it because they have some time to test it out and they will find if it's something that they want to buy or not within the 14 days and we also find a model where most customers pays yearly up front which helps us with the cash flow prediction and also helps us with not you know burning too much money too fast on just on just hardware i think challenges has always been around you know having teams located in different time zones there are a lot of benefits doing a company that operates in multiple time zones or multiple countries of course which is you know you can grow faster if you find the right model and you can address the needs of customers that have slightly different requirements and if you have these requirements early on in the product it makes you easier to prioritize what do we need to develop for the coming two years i'm really interested in particular within the sales model you said about being very good at sales and an engineer yourself i'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on developer-centric salespeople and the benefits of having kind of engineering mindset sales teams is that something that you very much look to implement and see benefits with at automile yeah i think the first thing i meet at salespeople that had doesn't have any tech background at all they don't understand how to do automation they don't understand how repetitive a sales process has to be to scale over time and many times you know if you don't have that tech knowledge it doesn't transport itself up to the management and management doesn't know how to optimize the model itself i myself together with my founders and my management team we oversee all the time how can we make it more efficient how can we avoid people clicking too much in uis how can we avoid people spending too much time on on making sure putting in an order with all the order fields how can we minimize everything to a stage where it's almost self-serviced so meaning that you basically have a customer call he wants to try the service and within 30 seconds you place the order and shipped out automatically by a third-party vendor there is no manual things at all between the salespeople and the actual customer on the other end and that's super important and even comes down to financial stuff you know how can you optimize your erp systems to be fully automated with taxes with you know everything from bottom up and bottom down you know without having to touch anything because that's how we want to build the company i remember early on with automa when all my bookkeeping firms said you know oh, this is easy to do we just need to put one people to do this manually and i said no we will not do it manually we would do it fully automated so we built our quickbooks integrations we built our other erp integrations and we was fully automated after a year and we saved that 
person doing that job. And scaling a company is all about finding the gaps early on so you can cover them with automation. That's super important. And speaking of automation there and kind of building processes, you said there about kind of keeping customers happy. And that's one element that Jason Lemkin suggested I talk about in terms of selling to the SMB market. So I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts about how you think about churn within SMBs and whether the traditional ethos of them having a much higher churn than kind of more enterprise customers has played out for you. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, our churn is very, very small. It's actually 1% per year and mostly happens because small businesses run out of business. And that's what happens in the SMB space. So something I learned about the small, medium-sized sector, I think I actually learned it during my past companies with Joss when I had over 250,000 consumers to deal with. And what I learned early on is that these people, they care about what they paid for very, very deeply. If you have a customer on the phone or in a chat window and he doesn't feel pleased, we need to do everything to find him pleased. And to be that, we need to be nice, polite, and we need to take full responsibility. And that doesn't mean that we just give them whatever they ask for, but it means that we make sure they are happy in the end of the day. And, you know, it could be everything from like a customer has paid for the service, but after a few months, we find out that they aren't happy and we try to resolve it, but we don't find a proper way of resolving it with the customer. So we refund the customer rather than having a customer around in our customer stock that doesn't feel 100% pleased. That's how we take responsibility. We want our customers to feel that the value we are delivering is excellent and they're happy to pay for the service when the invoice comes. That's super crucial for us. And I think what we learned is that if we use that model, first of all, we're getting lots of referrals. Even small businesses, you know, they know people that works for bigger companies. And they recommend this small company from the beginning called Automile, which was very small from the beginning. And now I have 60 people employed to say, hey, this company is actually working great. You should try it out. And that story is so important and powerful in the markets you operate in. And I think today, given how it looks like last month, we did over 400 new customers. And this month, probably we will do over 400 again, or even 500 this month. We have to see. It's still 15 days left in the month. I think that we have found a way to understand how these small-sized businesses think. We have found a way to make sure they pay for the service. And when they pay for it, they feel that it was worth it. That's the thing with Alamo. And another one from Jason, kind of with regards to the paying for it and the sales aspect, and it's in terms of with a relatively low ACV model, uh, how do you have a, a sales team? And at what kind of ACV level do you think an inside sales team is possible? So first of all, the, the thing that I noticed in the US, you know, that I started to operate in US late 2015 was that when I hired salespeople, they wanted a classical sales model uh, with SaaS for, for commission-based, and then, you know, they want a base salary, and then 50% typically is the variable sum of it. The thing with operating in the market like us is that we are slightly different. So I think that given how we operate with commission structures and how much money uh, salespeople can actually make on working for Arma, I think that around $3,000 is an AC we have found. And, you know, a typical sales rep is capable of closing a lot of new customers per month with all the automation we have. I think that's a very feasible sum. I do want to dive into a quick fire round there. And it's one of my favorites of any interview. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Sure. So 
what hires do you wish you'd made earlier? VP of engineering. Why is that? Because I do all the things myself during these days, and that's hard. Yeah, to lead an engineering team. <laughs> that is. Uh, how have you seen early stage SaaS startups go wrong most often? Doesn't understand the financial model and how to make money at the end of the day. What does success look like to you with Automile? Global domination, offices in many, many countries, and a strong profitable model. What's been the biggest challenge about taking the family to the US to go big? The biggest challenge is being a small guy in a big country from the beginning with a no name and operating with a family with three kids over time requires its time also. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with Automile? How easy it could be to scale when you find the right model. And then moving out of the quick fire, so brilliant A, getting in on the 60 seconds each one, love that. But final final one, and it's an element that you particularly do very well at Automile, and it's the transparent element of how you run the company. And you recently post on Twitter about crossing the 5 million in ARR mark, uh, up I think it was 500% from the year before. So talk to me, what are the benefits of being so transparent with the results of the company first? Let's start with that. I think the benefits are clear that you understand that you're operating with a founder and CEO that typically always talks about stuff. I, I don't hide stuff. I don't. I, I make it clear to everyone as clear as I can make. I repeat myself as needed. And I think being transparent by the employees is typically seen very positive to understand why decisions are taken, that the management is, is there to discuss them. And being transparent also has advantages to its investors, of course. You know, they understand that these are the metrics and they are always aligned with it, each other. And even if they are good or bad, they can always say the both of the things. And I think that covers all the benefits, basically. I think being transparent is genuinely better than not being transparent at all and not saying anything. And I'd rather say exactly as it is than not saying anything. What if it's not good news? So as you tweeted there kind of about the fantastic milestone achieved, what if it wasn't good news? Would you publish then? I would say that everything, I've been very clear with all my things that, you know, I haven't succeeded with in the past. If you if you read my Medium articles, you will find out that I talk about all things. I, I run out of business when I was 24 years old with, with Joss. I, I created a $50 million company and I run out of business after one and a half year. Things go wrong all the time and I talk about them all the time. But, you know, of course, with Automile, things are going good. And of course, we, we do have drawbacks and we have things that we need to, to work on. But I think most of the things we are transparent about and internally, we are always transparent. Most of the things, of course, smaller things, HR questions, everything are kept internally because they need to be kept internally because we can't disclose people's things. We, we disclose the company's things, as to say. Can I ask, are there any limits to transparency internally? I think the limits are, of course, privacy protection wise, we never go beyond that point to talk about people generally. We, we have a, an HR team, which includes the management team that discuss topics like that. But otherwise, I think that internally, I think it's very important to be very transparent about how are things actually going with the company? Like, did we reach our plans? Did we not reach our plans? And also accept that people have comments, questions. And then also, if you're restructuring or doing the changes in the teams, you always need to talk about that also. Why are you doing a restructuring? What are you changing? Which people are have to leave or not leave? which people have to move, you know. And I, I think that being transparent about that is very important and also act on it very firmly. So so don't wait too long on it. Just act and then, then talk about it. And I think the limitations are just around that privacy concern that we can never disclose things about people all the time because generally everyone has their topics on their agenda. We all have families. We all have things to care about. And we understand that life is not just about working for a company. It's all much more than that. What are your thoughts about transparency with regards to fundraising and 
government access, often it can kind of be a bit of a stickler for teams whereby they're waiting for a funding round to close that may take longer than expected. They're waiting for an exit to happen that may fall through. How do you kind of look to behave around uh, fundraising and exits with regards to communicating that to the team? Okay, so specifically investors that have come across us and contacted us or we have been introduced to, we typically are very clear on what our intentions are. Like, for example, we are raising new money probably by next year. These are how much money we have currently. This is how much money we are burning. As you can see, there's no rush on raising money today. And being very clear on your agenda makes it much more easier to talk to the investor itself. And then we all know that investors, they want every piece of material they can get in the company, specifically, you know, contemplating a new investment. And this is hard generally. You, You do not want to give out every single document because you're like, it's just going to drain your company with resources. So what you do is that you put together a document package with all the figures, everything everyone needs should be deeply contained with, you know, things like customer references, exactly how the company is operating, going, churn, etc. And that's it. And then everyone has to make their judgment. And if they want to invest or not, it's up to them, you know, because there will always be investors that will find a small piece of information somewhere to say, oh, I can't invest because of this X, you know, and you don't want to hide anything. So on your agenda is never to hide anything. It's just making it as transparent as possible and give them enough material to make a, a very available decision on, on on top of their table. No, absolutely. I agree. Can I ask, with regards to the fundraising process itself, how did you approach it in terms of, did you take a very strategic approach in terms of kind of having a prepared pipeline and then working it towards a conclusion whereby everyone's kind of giving term sheets at the same time? Or was it a lot more serendipitous? I think during our, like when we had our seed run with 0.9 and Dawn Capital, it was more like a little bit like that maybe. But in our Series A, we were still a European company with limited revenue from the US. And I think that what I was looking for is basically an investor that can help me to build my team in US and also build my reputation in US and also profile me as a US company at the end of the day. And, you know, of course, when you're contacting investors, you look at different partners. When you meet Jason Lemkin, you know that this is the guy that can really help you with this. (laughs) And I think that Jason Lemkin is a person that, first of all, he understands the entrepreneurship any better than anyone else I met because of his last endeavors with specifically EchoSign, which will use success for him. I think that, you know, if I look at him, understanding European founders, and, you know, he has backed many of them, including Nicolas from Agolia and also Tiago from TalkDesk, etc. I think he understands all the concerns we are having and are able to support us. And I think that made me to basically just make sure that I pick his term sheet, you know, because I can't find a better person to sponsor me. No, I agree. And Jason is uh, the best sponsor always. Uh, But he told me himself that it would be a fantastic interview and it's absolutely been so special to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. What a fantastic episode that was with Jens. And again, thank you so much to him for giving up the time today to appear on the show and such exciting times ahead for him and for Automile. And if you enjoyed the show today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK, or you can follow me on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs. It would be fantastic to see you on those respective platforms. And as always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.